Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. If an individual has been out on the streets for a long time, if they weren't suffering from mental illness or substance abuse when they became homeless, they are suffering from some form of serious mental illness and probably substance abuse by definition. I need some big study to tell me that. Hey, give me shelter listeners. It's Matt Levin, housing and data reporter with Cal Matters. Hope you're having a happy Thanksgiving week. We've perfectly timed this episode, so um, by the time you land at LAX and make your way to your Uber, um, you could listen to this hour-long episode three or four times. This fortnight, something a little different because of the holiday. Um, we're bringing you a panel that Liam and I moderated in our SoCal Gimme Shelter housing tour. This took place at a homelessness and housing town hall that was put on by Cal Matters and the Los Angeles Times and the Milken Institute. Um, this took place at the Milken Institute on November 5th, earlier this month, in Santa Monica. And it's a timely interview. This is an interview with Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg and L.A. County Supervisor Mark Ridley-Thomas. They are the co-chairs of Governor Gavin Newsom's statewide task force on homelessness. Uh, it's a good panel. We talk about what right to shelter actually means, which is kind of a controversial topic in homelessness policy circles in California. Um, we talk about whether people experiencing homelessness have a legal obligation to accept that shelter if it's available. Um, we talk about ways to bring down the absurdly high costs of building new permanent supportive housing for people experiencing homelessness. And listening back to this, I, it, it is interesting some of these comments in light of all of these rumors of the Trump administration doing some type of crackdown on California homelessness in L.A. and San Francisco in the next few weeks. Um, although what that exactly means, I don't think anybody, at least here in California, really, really knows. Thanks to J.P. Morgan Chase & Company, Edison International, and SoCal Gas for sponsoring this town hall. We will be back in two weeks with a regular episode of Gimme Shelter, probably the last regular episode of Gimme Shelter for 2019. Um, we'll be at least partly previewing what housing stories you should be looking out for in 2020. Um, all right, without further ado, here are myself, Liam, Mayor Daryl Steinberg, and Supervisor Mark Ridley-Thomas on how to fix housing and homelessness in California. So again, I'm Matt Levin. I'm the housing and data reporter with Cal Matters. I host, co-host, co-produce, I do all the editing, uh, <laughs> Give Me Shelter with um, my buddy Liam Dillon here at the LA Times. Um, for those that don't listen to the podcast, we actually don't really need you to just subscribe um, and give us five stars on iTunes and that's all we ask, that's great. Um, every two weeks, or as our nerdy housing wonk audience calls it, uh, Fortnite, um, we discussed a California housing policy topic. Daryl has uh, been on the podcast before. He's and, and survived. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and today our topic is a statewide look at uh, housing and homelessness issues. Um, and we have the perfect guest. Liam, who are our guests? So we have to my left, uh, Los Angeles County Supervisor Mark Ridley-Thomas. To his left, uh, Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg. And they are the dynamic duo who are in charge of the Governor's uh, Homelessness Task Force. Mm. Please welcome our guests. 
So I'm going to ask the first question. This is for the both of you, and, and I will admit it's an extremely rude question. Um, so homelessness has been a problem a long time. Countlessness, countless studies, countless other task forces. Why do we have, need to have another task force on this? Can't we just do something about the problem? Daryl? <laughs> this, let me just say from the beginning, this guy is trouble, okay? Um, and uh, actually, I think it is important it is the two of us because we are old friends and colleagues, uh, served together in the legislature, and have both returned to local government, and uh, obviously are living these sets of issues in a real way. And I, I understand the question that a task force uh, in and of itself can be just an excuse to do nothing, or it can be an impetus to action. And I hope over the course of this hour, you will hear that Supervisor Ridley Thomas and I are suggesting a fundamentally different approach, what I would call a deductive approach to public policy making as opposed to a bottom-up inductive approach, and that we uh, believe that if we define the public policy of California in a different way than it's currently defined, that we can actually, as a state, make pretty dramatic strides to improve the homeless problem in California. Happy to detail that, but uh, I don't know if you... Do you want to add anything, Supervisor, and why you're here? Well, that's a good question <laughs> as to why I'm here. So. <laughs> um, I think different from what may have been the case in other instances, we have a governor who has made it abundantly clear that, like it or not, his administration and those of us who are in public office own this issue. We cannot run, a, we cannot run away from it. Uh, we shouldn't. We are morally obligated to confront it. Um, and to the extent that that was well beyond a campaign uh, speech, he has chosen uh, to identify uh, who to him are some of the leading thinker, actors, policy makers, uh, service providers, um, uh, dealing with the question of homelessness and housing in the state of California. And it's the very uh, impetus that brings us to the table uh, that distinguishes uh, why we are there and what we will ultimately accomplish. I believe that the governor, um, unlike uh, his predecessors, um, refuses uh, to allow this to get worse on his watch without a valiant effort to make a difference. So Can I put a fine, uh, just a little bit of an exclamation point on that? Um, Jerry Brown, to me, was a great California governor, but this was not his issue, and these were not his sets of issues, and he actually kind of made it very clear. And we do have a new and unique opportunity with a governor who has lived this as mayor of San Francisco and who cares passionately about it to uh, turn the tide. Um, so continuing Liam's rude line of questioning, um, what is, what's the actual deliverable that you guys will be in charge of producing? And how does that translate to actual um, progress on the ground? Can I start on this one? Or would you like to? 
He has a hard time restraining himself. Please, <laughs> please help yourself. Please, thank you. So let, let's get to the meat of it. First of all, let's, let's be honest with each other for a moment here. I, this is maybe the third forum I have attended this week. It's usually three or four a week. Yeah. Where I listen to and participate in conversations about what works about the best practices in County A, B, or C, about rapid rehousing for those who are immediately homeless and not living with chronic mental health or substance abuse conditions, about the housing first model for those with more chronic conditions, about assertive outreach and intensive case management and mental health and substance abuse services and the importance of navigation centers and permanent housing. There is so much good work going on in this state, it shouldn't be ignored. But that begs the question, is this a failure of medicine and science, or is it a failure of public policy? And I think Supervisor Ridley Thomas and I both come from the perspective as lawmakers that this is primarily a failure of public policy. And what do I mean by that? We have a tacit public policy in this state that says it is okay for people to live outdoors. Everything we do around homelessness is actually voluntary. It's out of the, the best intent, morality, economics, public safety, public health, but it's all voluntary. And you know, in 1967, when the state passed the Lanterman-Petrus Short Act in California to deinstitutionalize de uh, people who are living with mental illness, they never partnered that with a right for people to be housed, a right for people to get the services that they need. Contrast that with what happened 10 years later when we passed the same law for the developmentally disabled. We gave th that vulnerable population a right a right to housing, a right to a roof, a right to services. I would submit to you that we don't see people with autism, by and large, or, developmentally, or developmental disabilities living under freeway overpasses in huge numbers. And until we change that public policy from it's okay, whether we believe it or not, for people to live outdoors, to a legal imperative, of some kind for people to be indoors, and I say it's a government imperative first, to provide a, a roof over people's heads, we're not gonna be driven towards the collaboration, the resource consolidation, and everything else that it will take to take these best practices and actually bring them to scale. It's a failure of public policy, and we must then define the public policy with much greater urgency and with direction than what we have done up to now. I think one anecdote will suffice. Sunday morning, around 10.30, heading north on Western Avenue, I came upon Washington Boulevard. Traffic was stopped. Uh, two men were literally in the streets fighting. Rolling on the ground, one was viciously stabbing the other. 
blood everywhere, cars passing. Um, and my aide said, we can't just drive by um, because that man is going to die. And we exited the vehicle and uh, intervened uh, as carefully and as forcefully as we could, only to take note of the fact uh, that the person wielding the blade um, made some indication that he was trying to protect his belongings situated right there at the bus stop and kind of gave indication that the other guy was trying to rip him off. What I took note of was practically at every corner at that intersection, uh, there was an obvious indication of someone who was homeless, um, either suffering from a mental illness or uh, that of addiction. It was pretty obvious. Um, and the only thing that I want to uh, say without uh, belaboring the point is we are far and away at a point of crisis that cannot be ignored. Uh, this simple illustration punctuates what I think is happening with increased frequency throughout not only Los Angeles, I hear uh, reports from that which is going on in uh, other parts of the state as well. Our task force has been to uh, Stanislaus County, we've been to Alameda County. Uh, we're not done, but uh, the reports are increasing and they're forceful and they are unkind. Uh, they're unkind to the environment, they're unkind to the individuals. And if I could say anything, it is essentially this. Those who refuse to accept the urgency of the hour and fail to construct policy that is commensurate with the urgency that we make reference to with regularity are essentially not doing the job that we need to do. I say that uh, in regard to public policy makers, <coughs> office holders, academics, providers. This is urgent beyond what we've ever seen. We celebrated Measure H in this town. We celebrated uh, Proposition Triple H. Uh, the circumstances are more dire today than they were in 2017 and 2016. Who would have thought it? And so those who resist the language of the state of emergency, find your own language. But we should not adjust as if to suggest this is our new normal. It cannot be. Uh, this is bereft of the very things that define dignity in the context of a democratic society. And that's why 
the mayor and I are pushing as forcefully. That's why the governor is saying we own this and we won't turn back until something meaningful is accomplished. So I'm going to get to the next question. I want to remind folks we have cards at the table. Please hand them up. We'll have some time for audience questions at the end. Uh, so um, both of you submitted an op-ed a few months ago kind of addressing some of this, the, the, the principles that you just laid out about um, the idea of some sort of right to shelter for folks. And uh, as a follow-up on that, I'm curious, should people experiencing homelessness have a legal obligation to use that shelter if it's available as well? Do I start or do you? Well, um, the... He starts. Um, <laughs> uncharacteristically. Um, <laughs> I think we have to lock in on what we are confronted with. The circumstances on the streets of our state, and let's talk about our own reality in Los Angeles County. The data that we've distributed from the Department of Public Health, uh, the information that comes from the medical examiner county coroner makes it very clear that people are literally dying two and three persons per day in the county of Los Angeles, directly attributable to being homeless, being outdoors, dealing with the uh, range of issues, and it's trending upwards. Um, and while, in fact, uh, uh, both Daryl and I have no desire to force people to do anything that they didn't, shouldn't want to do, uh, we need to make it clear, if we take seriously the notion of a right to a door, a right to a roof, a right to shelter, a right to housing, characterize it as you wish, um, that we must focus on causing the provider, namely in large measure government, and by extension, uh, the private sector. Government provides infrastructure, private sector provides innovation. We work together, something can happen. I don't believe, uh, if you think about this and argue this philosophically, um, that we uh, should put uh, an abundance of emphasis on compelling people to go in because there are 30,000 people in this county today who are ready to go in and we need to provide the shelter for them. So in the ethical discourse, they call that a misplaced debate. In other words, we should be focused on that which we can do that's before us here and now rather than obsessing over issues that may, uh, in isolated instances, violate uh, the rights of um, uh, individuals, which we do not wish to do. We are not advocating criminalization at all. We are advocating dignity for every single person that finds him or herself on the streets of our state and our county. Sure. I, I think that was... Very eloquent, actually. Thank you, um, Mr. Steinberg. You know, a rare instance of eloquence. <laughs> <laughs> so it, your question, though, does give me a chance to clarify um, terminology here, because I think in yeah. this instance it's actually very important, because you referred to a right to shelter. And it is true that in the first op-ed piece I did in the L.A. Times, That's I did call it a right it to I did. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I own it. But yeah. you know what? Yeah. I also am a learned... Uh, 
uh, policymaker, and I listened, as did Supervisor Ridley Thomas, and, and so uh, I've shifted a little bit based upon what I've learned. And we no longer call it a right to shelter deliberately. We're talking about a legal imperative to provide a dignified roof over someone's head. Now, why is the distinction important? Because I agree that where we have the capacity to put people into permanent housing, that that ought to be first. Mm -hmm. Navigation centers should be, as we call it now, ought to be the default and the fail-safe. And by the way, a lot of people with the chronic mental illness and substance use issues can't succeed in permanent housing right away. And permanent housing takes too long to build and is too expensive. And I hope we get to that question at some point in, in the discussion. But it's a legal imperative to bring people indoors in any way or in any fashion. That's important. We're not calling for the New York model. New York had a right to shelter, but it was imperfect and is imperfect because they haven't combined the mental health services, the substance abuse services, and people have lingered in the, in the rundown shelters too long. But the New York right is nonetheless powerful because 95% of the people are off the streets, at least under roof. So if we take the best of their right and the best of what we know, housing first, supportive services, we could do something phenomenal. On the obligation side, I agree with Mark. Ultimately, I don't believe once we have the capacity yeah. that people should be living outdoors. I think 85% of the people, by the way, will come in with the right kind of outreach and trust building that is necessary for people who are traumatized and ill. But at the end of the day, for that 15%, if it came down to it, once we've created the right and the capacity, I say people can't live outdoors. But that is, as Mark said, maybe a debate before it's time because we don't have the moral high ground nor the legal high ground yet to even think about calling the question because we haven't built the capacity. Doesn't then that involve, and I'll, I'll drop this once we ask this question, doesn't that involve some sort of criminalization if they're not allowed to? to no, no. Out there at the end? no, but the civil law, 5150, for example, is okay. not a criminal statute. No, it's but a the, civil, it's the a cops civil are the statute. ones that are out there. In court. Well, but that's because uh, it, they have been our default, They've which is default. Right. the failure of our policy making. I mean, we assign law enforcement practically everything conceivable. Um, and that's because we've been less than imaginative about uh, raising different levels of, of government to interface with the public. Uh, it's a beautiful thing in the county of Los Angeles. We started out with less than 50 outreach workers uh, from a multidisciplinary uh, approach. They're nearing 1,000 now. My point of view, the more outreach workers we have, the better it is. Law enforcement doesn't build trust. Social workers do. do. Yep. Public health nurses do. People with lived experience do. Do you follow me? This is what we need more of. And you know what? It's more cost effective. And the police don't want to do this anyway. They're not and trained we, and to do it. And we burden them in really unfair ways right. to pick up the slack for our collective failure. They should be, not be the first line of defense when it comes to this terrible health and social condition? And so what we need would not be jails. We need more 
mental health urgent care centers, we do. as we built in the county of Los Angeles, uh, the most recent of which um, uh, in Culver City, prior to that MLK, prior to that LAC USC Medical Center. We need more of that. What we need are, will be more sobering centers. Uh, what we need is more behavioral health centers. Uh, it's a shift of consequence in terms of our thinking uh, about how we respond to building uh, an appropriate and enlightened safety net rather than uh, defaulting to uh, punitive imp impulses that say lock them up, throw away the key. Not smart, not good, not fiscally responsible. Um, so I'm actually going to ask an audience question because it's particularly relevant to this topic. All the things you mentioned um, cost money. Mm -hmm. um, this question from the audience asks, uh, what source of funds should the state create to pay for a right to shelter that will be sustainable during an economic downturn? So, so this is the question that comes up all the time. It certainly came up. Uh, it was the response from a lot of folks in state government and the Newsom administration when we first raised this. Oh, my God, are you creating some new multi-billion dollar entitlement here that the state cannot afford? And you know a little bit about my history. I authored the millionaire's tax in California, Prop 63, generating $2.4 billion a year. So I'm not afraid to talk about tax increases as necessary. But this might surprise you. I fundamentally do not believe that this is a resource or money problem. I think that's too convenient. This is a systems problem. Why is it that we've, we've got billions of dollars out there, but our arms, if you will, are not necessarily coordinating with each other towards a North Star, towards an imperative? towards a, a governmental obligation to bring people indoors so that they can be helped and served. Look at the Mental Health Service Act is a great example. We originally passed that act um, to fight homelessness. Yes. And in many respects, it has done a great job. We never, you know, it's so easy to be critical. Where would we be without it? And it has actually led to great innovation. Some of those urgent care mental health centers that supervisor mm. talks about are funded by the Mental Health Services Act. But in some counties, and I would include Los Angeles County, not enough of the so-called full-service partnership money is being spent on the most chronically homeless people. It's being spent on people who are ill and need help, but not on the homeless. And so we've got to refresh that initiative, in my opinion, my initiative, yeah. to make sure that it is focused more intently on this particular problem. It's generating $2.4 billion a year. What if we came up with a billion? And what if we asked counties and cities, and the private sector, to come up with another billion? And in New York, imperfectly, brought 75,000 people indoors for a cost of about $1.6 billion a year. We're all in the neighborhood here. And the state probably needs to kick in some more money, especially for criminal justice in the jails, mental health in the jails. But this is not fundamentally a resource problem. This is a systems problem, and it's a public policy problem because we don't have anything that we are shooting for in terms of how we're spending the billions of dollars that are out there. The additional point I would make is that we have, it's always useful to be um, open and appropriately 
uh, self-critical. I do not believe the public sector, particularly counties, have been the best stewards of um, Prop 63 resources. Um, both Daryl and I served on um, the governing board of Prop 63 um, when it was first established, when we were in the Assembly and then in the Senate. Um, and moving to the county, I'm struck by uh, the learnings of insufficient spending of those resources. And this is, to some extent, uh, it had been a best-kept secret. Um, and I uh, think that that's a function of a couple of things. One, a lack of imagination and, on the one hand, and two, a lack of uh, appreciation for the profundity of the problem and the extent to which it was growing beyond what had been anticipated. Um, we didn't step up quickly enough, properly enough to address it. And frankly, um, I'm not persuaded that we have yet. Therefore, more needs to be done. In a conversation just yesterday with uh, the mayor, the governor, and myself, um, it was clear that we have to be very thoughtful about this. It's not a money problem by itself. It has structural implications. There are issues related uh, to tensions uh, from a, physical, a fiscal perspective. In other words, um, the governor was quite open and clear with us in his uh, comment about, listen, we can't create a circumstance where uh, we have a collision between uh, IHSS on, um, on the one hand and disability rights on the other hand and then uh, homeless uh, needs and the like. And so this is very carefully and very thoughtfully needing to be structured. And I appreciate it, and I think this is true for you as well, Darrell, uh, the thoughtfulness, the care with which uh, the governor articulated the, the constraints under which um, government operates, and yet he did not use that as an excuse not to act. Exactly. So, so I'm glad you brought up this pot of money. Um, folks in the room may be aware this pot of money was tapped uh, last year for the Prop 2 uh, bond measure, which uh, goes to $2 billion for um, uh, building uh, homeless housing across the state. Uh, but that money, as I said, was tapped in a bond measure, in a ballot, on a ballot that the state, voters in the state had to decide on. Uh, so to, a bit of a two-part question. One, what, speci what specifically sorts of changes do you think need to be made to free up the money to allow to pay for some of the services that you're hoping for? And do you expect that to be put in front of the voters as a, as a ballot measure perhaps next year? Well, I would like to see the Mental Health Services Act um, continue to do all the good and great things it has done, because part of the maybe defensiveness I have a little bit, maybe it's pride of authorship, is that it's easy to be critical without recognizing the unbelievable amount of good that it is doing around innovation, around these urgent care centers, around full-service partnerships for thousands of people, because it's doing uh, heroic work, and where would we be without it? Mm -hmm. I just think it's time, though, to, to refresh. 
And to say that fundamentally we want $2.4 billion to be focused on three things. Chronic homelessness, mental health and uh, the jails, which by the way has a, 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 an overlap with the homeless problem in a significant way. And third, youth, prevention and early intervention. School-based services, early psychosis, identification, intervention for teenagers. But doing that begs a different question, and I want to bring this quickly into the conversation because it's relevant. So if you make the counties focus on those three things, what about the other populations they're serving? What do you do there? We have not had a sufficient discussion in this state about real parity, mental health parity, when it comes to our healthcare companies and our insurance industry. Our parity conversation, frankly, has been a joke. We argue about whether or not somebody should have six therapy visits instead of, instead of seven or eight. That's not the question. The question is whether or not the benefits that are offered to people under Medi-Cal managed care and commercial insurance are actually uh, going to correspond <laughs> with the innovative practices that are being done on the public mental health side. Why aren't wraparound services covered by the insurance companies? Why isn't prevention and early intervention? Why aren't mental health services for seniors who are shut in, not homeless, but shut in, covered? Uh, we have got to have that conversation because that will free up the Prop 63 money then to be focused more intently on unsheltered homelessness, jails, and young people. Have you had conversations with private insurance companies or managed, court, managed care organizations about this, and what, what was yes. the reaction to it? Uh, nice to hear from you. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> we, we've begun the conversations, uh, but you know, I have my institute in Sacramento, and these are the subjects we're talking about. How do we step back, and how do we actually build a, a much better mental health system? Because it's not enough to just fix the public side of it. We also have to look at Medi-Cal managed care and commercial insurance, is my point. And so um, we're urging Governor Newsom, we'll be urging Governor Newsom to take on this mantle as well, because fixing the broken mental health system is an essential piece of fixing homelessness. It would seem to me that it would be appreciated that the private sector um, will necessarily be motivated. Uh, and not simply from um, a philanthropic perspective. Um, we've seen rather extraordinary examples of philanthropy over the last uh, several weeks where people are major companies from various aspects of the private sector come for the Kaiser Permanente led with uh, a $200 million uh, stake and now uh, we have Amazon Apple Apple uh, come forth that was a tease for Amazon um, <laughs> <laughs> Apple to um, uh, come forth and there have been others right um, and so the point at which I know the hospitals private sector entities in that uh, space are motivated is and an area that I didn't mention, and that is in terms of recuperative care, much more cost-effective, and it's the antidote to uh, patient dumping. Um, and I expect 
properly constructed, we'll see more collaboration, public and private, in that regard. And not from a philanthropic perspective, but from the perspective of bottom line. Bottom line. Uh, and that's where we have to engage it and do much better, much smarter work. So we, we brought these paddles here, see the audience, there's green for yes and X for no, and we thought that we would, just in case, need them. And I think we're an occasion where we do, so I'm gonna hand these out to our guests here. And uh, yeah, just a reminder for those watching on um, Facebook and YouTube, we'll, we're also taking questions from you guys. Yeah. So uh, should we expect a ballot measure on this next year? Uh, green for yes, uh, X, for, X for no. Oh, no. So we have green from the mayor and, and red X from the supervisor. So it looks like there's still some discussion about that. It's worked. That would we're, be correct. We're working yeah. at it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about the cost of constructing housing for people experiencing homelessness. Um, there's estimates vary, but I think everyone can agree that permanent supportive housing especially is expensive. Um, I'm curious, what um, recommendations do you guys have uh, that the state can do to lower the cost of building permanent supportive housing? Want me to go? Okay. Go. I, so I've made a big time proposal in Sacramento that applies to my city, but I'd, uh, I'd urge anyone who's interested to take it statewide, and it, it's premised on this. The Average public subsidy to build a single unit of permanent supportive housing in California is anywhere from three to $800,000 per unit. Now, a variety of reasons for that, uh, but that's the way it is for now. At that rate, um, we are never going to address the volume of need that exists out there. People don't want shelters or navigation centers to be long-term, neither do I. There needs to be real throughput. At the same time, there is this, what I call, nascent set of industries out there around tiny homes, efficiency homes, cargo units, cabin communities, stacked units, um, uh, accessory dwelling units. None of these ideas have come to scale in any way. No, now, part of that may right. be regulatory in terms of the zoning codes and the it state is. HCD laws. I get that. But we need a Silicon Valley moment in this state around efficiency housing. How are we going to start new innovative industries that actually address the volume problem in California? And so my idea is this. We have a new housing trust fund in Sacramento. It's $100 million as a result of a ballot measure. I'm asking um, for an ordinance that says 30% of that money has to be spent on units which require a subsidy of no greater than $100,000. Is that total subsidy or just the, the city's portion? Total subsidy. Okay. $100,000. And that we define the kinds of efficiency housing, all the categories that I described and more, that we want to see built with that money. It is my hope that that's going to that spark a market here. Because without some public incentive, public infusion. I worry that these industries are gonna, and these innovations are gonna remain nascent without a real public-private partnership. I think that's got some real hope to bring, try to bring some of this to scale because we so desperately need it. Supervisor, before you answer, I just wanna um, 
perhaps in your answer, you could speak to the context. There's a recent audit that came out of uh, LA City, the spending of Prop HHH funds. Mm -hmm. You know, part of the problem being the cost so high and not, you know, not getting built as, as fast as folks had hoped. So if you could address that in your comments on this part. I'd be glad to. Uh, the auditor controller did come forward and say that it was as much as 600,000 per unit for certain units. And uh, uh, there are developers, uh, nonprofit developers and for-profit developers in the room today. So you know how to slice and dice those numbers. Uh, prior to that, uh, the state issued a report that uh, made it clear that there are fees, fees, and more fees that, in effect, um, cause um, escalation in terms of these numbers. Um, I don't necessarily see that turning back. Uh, straight talk here. Um, absent an intervention that's consequential, uh, that provides relief on the regulatory front. Uh, Miguel Santiago was successful in uh, moving legislation through that had implications for CEQA, uh, but that's simply in the Los Angeles area. It probably needs to apply statewide, but CEQA is not the extent of the challenge in terms of regulation. More needs to be done. Therefore, the conversation with the governor uh, speaks to what kind of executive orders would be appropriate to provide more relief, um, and what kind of additional legislation may be required. Um, but I uh, hasten to make this point. Uh, we shouldn't drive past the urgency of the hour. Uh, we need to build more quickly and more cost-effectively in order to relieve the crisis on the streets of our state and our respective cities and counties. It is uh, startling, to put it mildly, to think uh, that we had a significant conversation about HEP A and HEP C right here in the city of Los Angeles, the county of Los Angeles, second only to San Diego. Huge outbreak. Yes, yeah. outbreak in San And it was frightening. And it didn't affect just the homeless, but others who would obviously come in contact. Um, and then the think about typhoid uh, fever and typhus uh, being a real conversation that got the attention of the Department of Public Health uh, means that we have a crisis on our streets today. And the sooner, the quicker, the most meaningfully we can get people uh, into shelter, into a roof that moves to permanent supported housing and more, is the order of the day. There is no getting around that. That's what's confronting us, and that's what we should not run away from. Those individuals deserve much more. They are family, they are friends, they are colleagues, etc. Why is there such hesitance, reluctance to confront that crisis? Well, uh, some of it is the individuals who are vested in the affordable housing uh, industry, as it were, to say, wait a minute. If you start shifting to uh, the issue of shelters, quote unquote, uh, you take resources from those of us who are trying to move in the direction of building affordable housing. Well, for me, it is not 
either or. We can and should do both. And we need to lock in on that and make a difference yep. for the quality of life of those who are homeless and those of us who have to <laughs> contend with them <laughs> appropriately. Thank you very much, Mr. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we've done reporting at the LA Times recently uh, showing that substance abuse and mental, health, mental illness are far more prevalent among people experiencing homelessness in the county than the agency uh, in charge of that had publicly reported. Did that surprise you? And, and how has it changed how you approach this, this issue? Doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, I don't think, you know, sometimes I think we, we've lost our common sense or common understanding of humanity in this issue. Because from my perspective, if an individual has been out on the streets for a long time, hmm. if they weren't suffering from mental illness or substance abuse when they became homeless, they are suffering from some form of serious mental illness and probably substance abuse by definition. I don't need some big study to tell me that. It's different, of course, when you're talking about people who are economically uh, dispossessed and, and, and family that's looking to get off the street quickly. And Lord knows that's a serious, serious, tragic problem as well. But for the people who are chronically homeless, by definition, most of those people who are our neighbors, as Mark said, who have families, who were children, mm. who had lives, who they're living with, they're, they're ill. And like I said earlier, medicine is caught up because we know what to do. Medicine and science is caught up and, and, and sociology is caught up. We know what to do. But we fail from a public policy perspective to actually insist with a greater sense of urgency that we actually attend to our people. Oh. And that's what we're, we're, we're not just making a moral call for change here. We're doing that. He does it really, really well. Oh. But we're actually, we're, we're actually trying to add to that the, the que only question that really matters in the end, what set of public policies are we, are we suggesting that the state put forward to actually require it, to make it happen? Because what we're doing now may be helping a lot of people, but it's not driving towards reducing the numbers of unsheltered people who are ill on our streets. Liam, I think the data to which you refer um, brought forth a, a significant debate in academic circles. Um, the article uh, written by Doug Smith and elicited a response from Lhasa. Um, data sets were conflictual. One was dealing with the local scene. The other was really the national scene. And so whether or not that was the best way to focus in on the problem. Well, it wasn't just us. UCLA had similar results in there. UCLA had some heartburn related to the Times reporting. Um, and uh, um, I still think it's a worthy conversation um, um, to have. And I do think, frankly, that Lhasa is often too reactive. Uh, and I'll say that without fear of contradiction here. Um, 
we have a crisis of consequence on our streets and we cannot overlook addiction, we cannot overlook uh, mental disorders that are severe. Uh, it takes me back to Western and Washington. Uh, a woman was sitting there um, engaged in a full-blown monologue right in no more than 50 to 75 yards from the stabbing that was going on, and she did not move. Um, there's an intervention of consequence that needs to take place, and so um, it's clear that the mental health scene, the addiction scene, but those are not static, they're dynamic. In our meeting in Oakland this past Friday, uh, the experts say uh, that meth is more of a contributing factor uh, yeah. to uh, the scene that we see now, and there are not good treatments for meth. Other modalities and therapies for other uh, addictions, but meth, not yet. Not yet. Uh, but <clears throat> name the addictions, name the uh, mental disorders. Uh, they are um, eclipsed by the economic crises that have uh, visited the lives of individuals in such a way that they can't afford the rent. Um, there's insecurity of an extensive nature across the state, and it comes at a time where we experience we were to quote the governor, the highest levels of wealth seen in the state of California and the most extensive and intense forms of poverty in the state of California. We are confronting contradictions that are just simply untenable. Um, I want to talk about uh, prevention for a minute. Um, it's Fitting, this issue does not get enough attention, and we are only asking about it 45 minutes into a, an hour-long mm -hmm. um, conversation. But um, I'm curious, um, what is the most scalable prevention solution that you guys have seen operating at a local level that you think can go statewide? I think two things. One is rent stabilization and just cause eviction. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, you know, and I know that's a bit ideological, and, you know, the new state law exempts new construction, which I think it should, right? We don't want to kill the incentive to build more. But a reasonable balance, which I think the governor and the legislature found, yeah. um, I hope will make a huge difference on that issue because uh, people are being evicted, sometimes unfairly, in ways that are just adding... Uh, to the terrible burden um, of, of homelessness. I also believe, though, we must put more attention into the, the right kind of intervention at the right time for people. Mm -hmm. I'm struck by, you know, that an article from Scientific American about the Chicago experience, where $1,000, a grant or a loan, $1,000 with the right kind of accountability for the family living on the edge who has the broken down car, the unanticipated medical expense, increased tenancies in the city of Chicago by up to 24 months. What a smart investment. Because think about the human suffering and the economic cost of not 
providing that support at the right moment. I, I think we need to develop those kinds of approaches to scale in California uh, to try to prevent people from becoming homeless. We need more uh, diversion opportunities, uh, behavioral health centers. Los Angeles is just now building its first such uh, center, the uh, repurposing the original MLK hospital, uh, 500,000 square feet. Um, it will be state of the art and it will make a difference. We need more of that. We need more recuperative care. We need more um, of that which is a way of intervening so that people once find themselves homeless are not stuck there. The longer they stay down, the harder it is to get them up, period, over and out. It's more costly in terms of public safety. It's more costly in terms of emergency rooms uh, and the like. And so the interventions on the front side, and I share the point uh, made by Mayor Steinberg that um, those things that speak to the economics of homelessness, uh, we have to put more emphasis on, but we need a range of resources in the environment that help us push uh, beyond where we are. All of the uh, services that I mentioned, that's a part of the safety net and the infrastructure that needs to be brought to bear. And we need to invite the private sector to bring levels of innovation to that so that we scale. Uh, real quickly, I just want to drill in on the statewide uh, rent cap law. Do you think that goes far enough? It's a limit annual increases of rent to 5% plus inflation. There's some ev new eviction protections there. Is that enough for... Well, let's put it like this. It beats a blank. Uh, <laughs> I've never seen perfect legislation. Uh, and oh, I had a couple bills. <laughs> uh, may I repeat myself? I've never seen perfect legislation. Uh, and I've been at this 30 years. And so uh, you build on it. Uh, and go forward. So, but I, I think you know, does it go far enough? Maybe, maybe not. But look, it it, it was it was an aggressive yeah, man. play, and it and it overcame decades. Remember, it was right. the Costa Hawkins law was from the mid 1990s. Right. It overcame decades of inaction on this issue. I think it was a significant advance. So, so quickly though, we have our paddles here, um, okay. green and green and red. Um, there is potentially an initiative that'll go on the ballot next year uh, for a more restrictive rent control uh, regime. Uh, they, they folks collecting it say that they're done collecting the signatures, uh, so that could well be on the ballot. Do you support that initiative or not? I, I like what the legislature did. I think it's fair, fine, balanced. <laughs> for uh, for a context that was a mid. Not quite a mid-paddle, yeah. Well, not quite an answer from the supervisor. <laughs> okay. Um, let me ask this. Uh, a few months ago, the president and some advisors were, was here. You um, had to mention him, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, so, but, but I... Uh, and, uh, I mean, I guess, I guess it's a mean different way, right? Like, like, do you... What? <laughs> <laughs> do you... Was he serious about helping homelessness in California or not? No. <laughs> but what, so maybe, so maybe yes, it's a different, well, let me ask it a different way. The, the governor, in talking about this, I think was actually pretty interesting and said some colorful stuff. He'd compared the president to a seagull who comes in, does what seagulls do, and then flies away on an issue, right? Uh, but he also D said- Don't insult seagulls. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
<laughs> but he also said the, the president was right to um, focus attention on this issue because it's a huge problem. And so to what extent do you think not just not just the president himself, but the sort of infrastructure that the president's uh, comments bring out, um, does that add a level of urgency that you think is useful anyway to, 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 to your reference? Not by being derogatory, not yeah. by hurling pejorative references to uh, every city in the uh, state of California that he can uh, think of. Uh, that doesn't help, and it certainly doesn't help to slash the budget of HUD. Um, and so uh, on every count, uh, it's hard to imagine how he's being helpful. And uh, uh, by the way, that extends beyond the issue of homelessness. <laughs> you, you don't say you care about homelessness and, and propose a federal budget that zeroes out the Community Developed Block Grant program. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's plenty of words and tweets. The actions say everything. Um, I want to talk about the Boise decision briefly. Um, we actually got a, a pretty good audience question uh -huh. about that. Um, just for background, um, that decision currently prohibits cities from ticketing and arresting homeless people um, for sleeping or camping on public property if there are no available uh, shelter beds, um, might be headed to the Supreme Court. Um, I'll just read uh, this audience question. Uh, this is to you, Supervisor Ridley Thomas. You're advocating for a right to shelter and yet voted several weeks ago to have uh, the county join an amicus brief on the side of the city of Boise in Martin versus Boise, so opposing the Boise decision. How do you reconcile supporting homes for unhoused people while also supporting measures um, to criminalize or supporting measures or tools that support criminalization? Well, I think um, I'm well beyond at this point in my journey being um reduced to pejoratives that would suggest that I'm trying to criminalize people. I've spent my whole career uh, working on law enforcement reform and will not uh, take a second seat to anybody in that regard. Uh, I simply want to say I believe the matter is urgent. And the impulse that drove me and still drives me as I've tried to articulate today is that we need to help people uh, get off the streets of our city, our county, our state. Um, and anything that's uh, seen as an impediment uh, to that, I'm prepared to challenge. I'm pre prepared to question. Uh, if it has to go to the, to the Supreme Court of the United States, so be it. And so, so let me be clear. Uh, I have substantial unreadiness about LPS. Um, I have substantial unreadiness about Mitchell. And the same is true about Boise. And from that, I will not retreat. I'm prepared to listen, but we have work to do. And those who want to spend their time uh, making a bigger platform for people to stay on the street, I would invite them to spend more time in helping us get people off the street. Mayor, do you have a take Me? on the Boise case? I had a slightly different take on the Boise case, <laughs> but you know what? Mark Lee Thomas, you know, we joke around a lot, but this is a great man, and and this is a, a rare elected official who's putting his heart and his capital into exactly what he says. We have a slightly different take on the Boise decision, which is that... Mm -hmm. I, I was not in favor of my city filing the amicus brief because I actually think Boise is logical, even if it's inconvenient for cities and counties. What Boise says is 
create the right and the capacity, and then if people don't want to come in, you can break up the encampments and move people along. So I worry that in some suburban jurisdictions, for example, that aren't doing their fair share of homelessness in Sacramento, that they would use, that yeah. they're using yeah. Boise to stand behind doing little or nothing. And so I had a different take on it, but that's okay. Yeah, I just don't want any more excuses not to do more to get people off the streets. I want to spend time, capital, uh, intellectual, financial, to get people the resources they need to be better, to live a higher uh, quality of life, uh, to have affordable housing, uh, and all of those things. And anything that seems to militate against that, uh, I think I have an obligation to call into question and challenge, and that's essentially what I've done. Do we have time for summations here? Or is uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the, uh, just wait a minute. They're running this show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, well, okay. well, yeah. well I, 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 I will let you do it, but in a form, form of a question that, I'll, yes, that I'm going to ask. Yeah. Um, a year from now, how will we know whether the work that you're doing on this task force was successful or not? The answer, the answer is whether or not the state has taken bold action right. to establish its public policy that leads, that begins leading us towards bringing people under a roof to get the help that they need towards reclaiming their lives. And this is the way I would end this and put it from my perspective. If anyone has a better public policy frame or idea, mm -hmm. then government's imperative and legal obligation to bring indoors, please bring it forward. Because we have to honestly ask ourselves, what is it going to take to bring best practices, which we know, to scale? What is it going to take for fragmented parts of government to actually consolidate resources and work together to achieve the result that we all want to see? What is it going to take to get most or all of 90,000 unsheltered people indoors? If there is a better idea, a better North Star than an imperative, a legal imperative, to bring people under a roof, now is the time. Thank you. I think uh, in a year, um, we will measure our worth our, our success uh, by whether or not a comprehensive crisis response strategy or plan has been uh, issued that is properly resourced and that is on the way to helping us uh, confront the crisis that has enveloped uh, the state of California. I have great reason to believe that we will uh, accomplish that uh, because of the leadership uh, in our state's capital, uh, because of the uh, cities and counties throughout the state that are uh, increasingly focused on it. Yesterday, uh, both Mayor Steinberg and I were uh, participants in a panel discussion on uh, this very issue uh, sponsored by uh, CSAC, which is the Counties Association, and California League of Cities, which is the Cities uh, Association. And this was a much better panel, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> without a doubt. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's an increased amount of focus on it. Our job is to keep the heat applied. We, expe we expect to do precisely that. I want to sneak this one 
uh, in at, at the buzzers who were running at a time. But uh, if you guys could grab your panels or your paddles, sorry. In five years, um, we will see a reduction in the number of people experiencing homelessness in California. It's a yes from Mayor Steinberg for our podcast listeners. All right. And a yes. Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a maybe from uh, And ultimately decides on yes from the supervisor as well. Please thank our uh, two wonderful guests. Thank you. Thank you.